0: deeply, I mean deeply, and really, really, really cares about us. The cross is one of the greatest evidences that proves God not only loves us, but wants to be deeply and meaningfully engaged in every area of our lives. The good times and the challenging ones, even the hard times. He wants to be engaged in our lives when we struggle. Now, if you have been with us in the past, you've probably figured out that I have a sort of a rhythm, if you will, for how I deal with with Easter. I kind of uh, leapfrog each year. One year we'll do something that is a little bit geared towards the skeptic, the heavily theological. We might talk about some of the objections people have towards Jesus. This is what we did last year. This year, since we're on a, what I call an emotive year, we're going to really spend some time looking about how the cross powerfully shapes the heart. This is a talk this morning that is really designed to get us to understand the celebration of Easter has a rich and meaningful impact in our lives every day of the year. That God is trying to communicate something through us in the way we walk with him, talk with him, and live in our lives. And that is really what I want you to leave this place thinking today. I want you to know in the depths of your heart that you, you should be encouraged. Because the cross really does some amazing things. Several we've talked about. The ones we'll talk about today are this. Perhaps the, the foundational truth, you might say, is the cross frees us from the idol of perfection. From the idol of striving to be something in life that we can never be. And punishing ourselves because we often have these goals at times that we can never live up to. The cross, hear me when I say this, it gives you and I a license to struggle. It gives you and I a freedom to say life is not always easy. Life is difficult. Life can be challenging. Life can be joyful and blessed. Life is all of those things. But the truth is that in all of those things, the promise of the cross says, you might even say it this way, God wants us to be aware of a certain reality, that God is kind and caring to us during those times, good and bad, success and failure, trial and struggle. The fact that the cross shows us this is in and of itself an amazing gift, but it gets better. The cross also tells us God is not just available to you in struggle during hardship and trial. The cross also shows us that Jesus left the cross at some point. So not only does the cross say God is available to you, the cross then shows us that Jesus goes to the grave and and overcomes the death of the cross. So not only is he available to you, but his power and presence to overcome struggle and trial and hardship in life is just as available to you. So the cross, I say it again, teaches us that Jesus wants to be deeply and meaningfully engaged in your life. Right now, and as my, my sermon will be next week, next week after Easter. This week and every week that follows, this truth doesn't change. We just highlight it today. And This foundation, this introduction, if you will, is now laid. Because of that, I want to jump right into the first truth that I want to share with you this morning. And let me just say this. Listening is important right now. Because if you miss this, you will miss the point of the cross that we want to point out today. And it is this. It'll be behind me. The cross shows us God knows we all have seasons of struggle in life. And he deeply cares about what we struggle with during those times. Now, that word struggle is ambiguous. So in this sense, I need you to apply your own context to that. Think past, present, and future. The struggles and trials you had in life. What you need to know is no matter where they are coming from or what you are dealing with, the point of this is God wants to be available to you during those times. He cares for you. And I'll reread Philippians 3, 10 through 11. If you've been wondering why we've been teaching on this verse for the past month, this is why. I want to know Christ, Paul says. It's a guy during, he's got a, he's got a trial going on in his life right now. He's in prison and thinking he's going to be murdered for, the, for his fidelity to the gospel. He says, I want to know Christ in the midst of this, yet to know the power of his resurrection. That's an interesting statement. We celebrate the resurrection today. And Paul says, one of the ways I know Jesus is to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, the general idea here is that the resurrection is something that we can attain. It's something that we can apply in our lives. And what I mean by attaining is not that you will come back from the grave like Jesus did. We'll have our own day to come back from the grave. It's the shift from this life to eternity. By attaining it, it means, Paul's saying, like, the same power present in that resurrection is available to us. And so simply put, if you want to experience the caring hand of God, which is the purpose of this message this morning, if you want to know and experience the fact that God loves you, you must first be honest with yourself about the fact that you struggle. Because the love of God is applied to our struggle. Let me explain what I mean by that. The very nature of the cross that we have spent this month teaching on, right? It's so funny watching the, the, the expressions of the cross in our culture. They can range from the substantial and significant uh, to the trivial. Last night, you know, it's a tradition in our house to give our children Easter baskets. And our children got chocolate crosses, which are, you know, we, we really love Jesus and want them to have Jesus engaged in everything they're doing. But it's kind of funny watching, like, the cross of Jesus, the instrument of death the world is redeemed on. My daughter is hacking away at a chocolate cross in our mouth, and it's like, dripping down the side of her cheeks. The cross is a cultural icon. The cross is an icon that has deep significance for those of us in the faith. The cross is something that is... It can be a colloquial trinket that we wear around our neck or, you know, we have a tattoo in our arm. It, no matter what it is, the cross has varied expressions in our world. But it is, according to God, meant to teach us a very certain thing. It reveals a stark and profound truth about humanity. So think about this. In Christianity, we teach and believe deeply that the cross is a solution. And you, if, if you're kind of a logistician and you're sitting here thinking like, The cross is a solution. What does that mean? What it means is logically and theologically speaking, if we say the cross is a solution, you don't need a solution unless there's a problem. The cross solves an issue for us. It's a struggle, if you will. The things we struggle with in life, the cross is designed to help us overcome them. And the struggle we're clearly talking about here, the one we have mentioned each week leading up to this week, is what we spoke about in full last week. Every single person on earth, every single person in this room right now, has a a choice to make every single minute of their life. We have to decide whether or not, like what Paul taught us in Ephesians last week, we want to pursue the darkness of the world. And by darkness, I simply mean the things that are contrary to the ways of God. Or do we want to pursue the light and life that Jesus provides us on the cross? In between those two poles... I like to say it this way, where we are with God today and where he wants us to be with him tomorrow is where the struggle is. Unless you are perfect in life, and if you are, you should write a book and let us read it. All of us have this reality. There's where we are and where we would like to be. And that bridge, for some of us, is not an easy one to cross. It can be challenging at times, it can be frustrating, and for some of us, we might not ever feel like we can get over it. The struggle, in other words, has already defeated us. That's why it is important to know that we we have to be able to admit that there are places in our life that we need to grow in God's light in, always. There is never a time in our life where there is not progress or room for us to grow in Jesus. And when we recognize that, it gives us this unique emotional outcome. It should, anyways. It should create a greater desire in us to press into God for his support. To become like God, talk one, means we have to recognize a need for God. And when we recognize a need for God, we are very likely to press into the God who can make us what he wants us to be. And so you see, Paul's point here is a reminder. When he says, I want to be like Jesus, I want to attain him in life and in death, I want to know the power of his resurrection. He's telling us something very important. Something he's trying to do in his life at the very moment we're reading this text he gave us. One of the main reasons God calls us to be like him is because we have areas in our life that are out of sync with his. You, you think it's a coincidence that Paul, in the middle of deep trial and suffering, is saying, God, help me to understand and to see suffering as a form of fellowship with Jesus Christ. Let me, help me understand how his cross shows me that I can endure no matter what is going on in my life. That is not a coincidence. Paul is writing this for the, the church at Philippi to read, but he's writing out of the overflow of his heart. There is an area in his life he's out of sync with. He's pressing into something he knows that only God can bring about in him. A proper perspective during a hardship. And so I say again, it is very possible and common, and I wanted to normalize this, that there are areas of our lives right now out of sync with God's. And you might say, man, that's like hard. Like, I've only been to this church once, so I've been here a lot, and I don't want to hear something like that today. Maybe you're saying this is a sensational statement. I just want you to know it's not. This is a normal statement in the Christian faith. And it is proven to us by the cross. And if we can maybe wear a different set of lenses as we look at that statement, it changes things in us. It no longer becomes something that reminds us of what we are not. It reminds us of what we can actually be. It gives us, simply put it, simply put, it gives us a permission to wrestle with stuff, to struggle in life. When you stop, or when we stop denying the struggle reality, it creates a fertile soil for God to work in our lives. It creates a fertile soil in humility for him to start shaping us and reshaping us into his image. And this is what Paul is getting at in Philippians 3.10. He's trying to show us this through his own life. He is telling us because of the cross, we now have the ability to be like Jesus. In our lives, we have the ability to look at our struggles. We have the ability to look at these and not be defeated by them, but to attain and apply the power of Jesus' resurrection to them in order to overcome any trial. So no matter where your life is today, Mountaintop or valley in the middle, somewhere I'm not even describing. The point of this is he's telling us the power of the cross and the resurrection gives us the power to overcome any struggle in life in the same way Jesus, is, Jesus overcame sin and the grave. That is the point of the resurrection. He overcomes. And the fact that he did overcome means that he is still overcoming in our lives. That is the truth. And that is why we celebrate Easter. It's why we, we do truly take a special place in the year to try to focus on this. That's the beautiful side of this. That said, though, true to form, there's a struggle in this. There are a great many people in Jesus who can't seem to apply that cross-centered reality to their own life. There are various reasons why this can be the case for us, why we maybe practice the opposite of what Paul tells us to do here in Philippians. We're not trying to attain the power of the resurrection. We're living in defeat. Lots of reasons, but there's only one I want to talk about today, unless if you want to eat lunch. We're only going to be able to deal with one today. The one I want to talk about is when a person gets to this proud and problematic place of believing they're, they're good to go in life. They no longer have need for God's presence and care in their life. And I want you to know that is a, that's sort of a trivial statement, but the way it manifests itself in our lives is often very sophisticated. No right-minded Christian would get up and say, I have no need for God. I have no need for his care or presence in his life. It's never that simple. What happens, though, is in very subtle ways over time, we begin to to live like that. We are kind of being reshaped into a different image, one that starts to look less like God. And when we become less than what God wants us to be, we're pursuing things other than God as if they are God. So it's a very subtle way that it kind of comes about in our lives. But the subtlety eventually leads to a pretty substantial impact. You stop pursuing the love of your father in heaven. You stop being able to experience the care and the genuine fervor he has for you. Sometimes people can't experience God's hand of care like this because they're too proud to admit they struggle. This is is one reason, maybe a little more overt than the first one I mentioned. They will straight up say, listen, uh, I know God loves me, at least cognitively they do. I know God cares for me, uh, but despite that, I actually cannot admit that I have difficulties in my life. They likely have what we call an approval idol here. This is when a person cares more about what people think about them than what God actually does think about them. The cross declares a statement about you. You are valued in God's eyes. You are now worthy in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done for you. It declaratively places a value on you, a big one that cannot be taken away. But yet sometimes here, we will let people in our lives place a value on us that is more substantial than God's value himself. We'll let people dictate who we are as opposed to letting God dictate and define who we are. And because of this, they can't admit they struggle because they fear others will think less of them if they find out their life is not as polished as they want it to be. We're not fooling anybody there, okay? For others, they reject God's care and presence because they have been sold a bill of goods at some point in their faith journey. Just straight up, somebody, someplace gave you some paradigm of the Christian faith you were told to live your life by. That was not an accurate one. You were told something along these, and, and what happens is, let me rephrase this, is that Bill of Goods then becomes a belief system that defines your life. The Christian life, you were told, is supposed to be defined by picturesque bliss. The Christian life, you were told, is that, listen, you know, there's joy in Jesus now. Don't be afraid of anything. Don't have troubles in life, you know. There is no such thing as hardship and trial. They read you all those verses in Corinthians, like, death has no sting. Life is no, no, there are no more problems. Jesus is taking care of it all. And you want to choke them, because that's not how you feel, Right? You're like, no, I know I'm reading this stuff, but I don't feel that way. Why? We've been told things like, you know, we, we never argue with our spouses. We always raise perfect kids. They get straight A's. This is what the life in Jesus is supposed to provide for us. Our kids don't mess up. You have kids now so awesome. You bring them to this place, and they're right now in the kids' ministry, and they don't even need their teachers. They're telling their teachers, hey, I know the Bible better than you. You sit down and let me school you right now, right? Because you are so amazingly discipling your children at home. That's how we have been told for a great many people life is supposed to be. Picturesque bliss. Now, please hear my heart when I say this. Over the years, I've counseled a great many people, more than I can count at this point, about the struggles they have in life. And keep in mind, I'm a human, so these struggles are also mine. And I can tell you to this day, I've yet to see a person who can really rest in and receive God's love and care for them on the cross if they have adopted these types of attitudes in their life. For some people, it's a theological inaccuracy. For other people, it is a misinformed attitude. Uh, uh, For other people, they just cannot believe that God actually loves and cares for them. Or for some, they might actually care more what people think about them than what God does. And hear me, I'm not saying you shouldn't care about what people think about you. I'm just saying you should make sure that what people are saying about your life does line up with the truth of who Jesus is. In that sense, there's a congruency in what God is saying to you. Not necessarily a person who might be trying to diminish your value in a way that God does not care for. So if you're visiting today, or if you've just been here for a while, this is a truth you're going to likely resonate with. I want you to know one of the things I love most about our body, I've pastored almost 20 years now, and I can tell you there is something distinctly beautiful about this church. I've loved all my congregations, but this one is different in a a very meaningful way. One of the things I love most about this and hear most often from you Whether I'm eating with you at Chipotle or drinking coffee with you or texting, Facebooking, I hate Facebooking, but I do it because I love you, okay? No matter what the communication method is, there is no culture in here that says in order to be a part of this family, you have to perfect your life first. In fact, this is quite the contrary of what we believe here. Part of what this family exists for is to help you perfect your life in Jesus by helping you to rest in his truth and his grace. There is a real authenticity here and it's been present here since day one. A recognition that life isn't always perfect. And when we're willing to be honest about that with each other, it really does become one of the main steps that God will ask us to take on the journey to become more like him. There has to be a freedom to struggle. There has to be a freedom to admit to God, we're not where we should be yet. And there has to be a camaraderie amongst brothers and sisters in Jesus to share that with each other. Because in that sense, we exhort each other on. You go to a person whom you love because you know they will love you back and shepherd you to a place where they might even be in their life, but you are not yet. And I promise you, if you are humble enough to go to somebody like that, God will bless you one day and he will send somebody to you in the same way. He wants us discipling those we care for and being humble enough to be discipled by those who care for us. And so perhaps the biggest reason to avoid the life struggle denial attitudes that we're talking about here, and we've only mentioned a handful of them, is that even when we hope to, It is very unlikely that we will fool the people who are closest to us in our lives when we do struggle. And I'll tell you why. It is pretty common for people to see and sense that stuff in you. They sense the tension, the turmoil. And they do this because God has said he's going to do that in them. Listen, God loves you enough to to the point where if, if he can't directly get to you, he will send somebody in your life to get to you. He will put people in your life who see and sense where you are in life. And he puts them there so that they can love and support you. Because this is a journey we all embrace together. The cross was a new path that we have been called to walk down together. And so even if you manage to hide this stuff, you, you must know you will never ever fool God. You won't. Because he knows every nook and cranny of your life. He knows you better than you know you. And he loves you more than you love you. He just does. That's what the cross shows us. And this is why it's a great tragedy. One of the greatest tragedies, you might say, of burying or denying your struggles is that you remove yourself from being able to experience the grace of God's cross to comfort you and help you overcome them. When you say, I want to be this, God wants to fulfill that reality in your life, so long as it obviously aligns with his image. And he wants to support you in that. So if you've come in here saying, like, I can't be something, you have to know that is not God's narrative for your life. Remember, the cross is a solution. So don't be afraid to admit there are struggles. It can't solve anything if you can't get to the place of admitting something. Now, the bottom line here is that God knows you struggle and even better deeply cares for you and I when we do struggle. And that's really what the heart of this verse and others like it communicate to us. God sees your struggles and wants to be a rock for you through them by helping you grow in his wisdom and grace. It's why it's so painful to see people walk away from this. The cross really is something that it's it's a once a year, you know, brush up. Easter is sort of like celebratory for a few hours on a Sunday and then we kind of go back to the, mundane spiritual reality of our lives when god says no the cross says it's like i turned a shower on and i want to bathe you in love and grace from here to eternity that's why we have to be careful to not choose the road of isolation and denial and this is a common attitude many christians practice it's not just a christian attitude it's a cultural attitude we are sort of individualistic in this culture and you can see how that can fly in the face of what we talked about a few weeks ago about how our father in heaven Wants, a, wants to be paternally present in our lives. We talked about the benefits of what it means to be called a child of God. God loves you and wants to be present. In the same way a deep, a, a loving, caring father wants to be engaged in the life of his children, God, in perfect ways, wants to be engaged in our life like that. He wants to be paternally present in our lives. And so people in this runaway camp, or that can't admit it camp, or the you know crosses a once a year kind of thing, they choose to run from rather than rest in the goodness and the grace of God. They have a God who sits in heaven who wants to be deeply personal with them, and yet they reciprocate relational coldness. Like, the cross lights up the world, and they keep throwing the switch off. And I genuinely believe this common Christian disorder— I've spoken about this in the past, but I want to reintroduce it today— finds its root in a belief system called deism. Now, those of you who read big books will know what this is. Those of you who don't will have experienced it without question. I promise, whether you have read about it in the text or seen it in your workplace— this, this is the root of what we're about to talk about here, of why there are Christians, many Christians, who don't have this kind of relational intimacy with God. This system, deism, has a long-standing history in American religion, and it is often mistaken for authentic Christianity, because it affirms several key aspects of Christianity, but then wholly denies several critical aspects of Christianity. It's like it kind, it kind of comes close in some areas, but in the areas that matter most, it doesn't come close at all. And so in general, this idea of deism teaches that there is a God who set the world in motion, right? If I were to say to you, there's a God who set the the world in motion, you would say, absolutely. Paul talks about that in the book of Acts, right? That we affirm, but there's a secondary point that we don't affirm. After God did all this great stuff, he then disconnected himself from it all. One of the best ways to understand deism, I heard this in school. It was a perfect illustration It stuck with me for decades, was to think about God as being a very talented watchmaker, Now, watches today don't probably have the cultural significance unless you're a watch person, and I know at least one in this body who is. Uh, If you look at your watch, especially if you're old school like me and you have one that still ticks, you're not looking at an an iPhone watch that's like talking to a satellite right now and telling you all kinds of cool things. If you've got a battery and a ticker, it's going to make a lot of sense to you. Okay? There is an amazing amount of stuff happening right in that watch right now. There are pieces and parts in there that are so small I can't even hold them in my hand that you need instruments to touch them. It is an intricate tool with all kinds of parts and moving pieces. It really requires somebody with a gifted nature to be able to build a watch. And this is how it was done in the old world. It was, a, it was an art, a true art form, to build one by hand. And so the analogy of God being a watchmaker is kind of comparable, if you think about it. We, we prescribe to a certain degree that, that God has created the world in our lives. He has intricately, intricately kind of built the world we live in. And, and has known us before we were even alive. He is engaged deeply in the process of building the world in us. We believe that. Or at least the deist does. But the problem is that after he sets all that in motion. He has such care for you. And intimacy after he does that he then just steps back and says. Now everything will run its own course. And so deism teaches that God no longer wants us or cares for us. He made the whole thing happen. But he ha- we have no need for him. We have no, no desire for his presence, love and care. Now, this is how a lot of people see their faith. They believe there is a God. They just don't think he really cares about them. Or they just don't care about him. The watch is just like a utility you look at. It doesn't have any, any purpose or presence on your arm anymore. And perhaps taking this to a further extreme is that there are some folks who will who will want to relate to God, but they will relate to him in a very consumption-oriented way. And I talk about this a lot here because it's perhaps one of the greatest flaming arrows in the lives of a Christian, in the life of a Christian today, seeking a meaningful relationship with God. They take what I'm saying today and they only hear the first point I'm going to give you today. They see contact with God as only something they pursue when they are in deep crisis. They don't recognize that like, God just doesn't want to be available to you, uh, not only in your crisis, but, but year round, mountaintop and valley. And so because of this, what happens is these folks never experience a meaningful relationship with God because he is treated like a utility. If you want to see how people see Christianity at times, move to the comedic circuit. Lots of bits I've seen on how folks understand the Christian life. A lot of it just straight up wrong. Some of it very funny. And at times it's also very true. I watched a comic years ago describing, describing how she understood Christianity. It was clear she had a very uh, troubling you know, interaction with it at some point in her life. But she was saying uh, it, was, it was just kind of like a Saturday Night Live type sketch. And she is not a Christian, but she was she was showing a, a, a prayer moment in the life of somebody who you know claimed to love God. And so she was sitting on a couch in silence. This is how the bit opened up, uh, clearly distressed. And then she began praying to God because she had been broken up with. She gets off the phone, and it's clear, like her boyfriend of long standing time breaks up with her, and she's set into this crisis mode. And so, in a soft voice, she's you know very wounded and hurt. She says, "You know, God, it's me. Can you hear me?" And she's, she's very quiet for a moment. And after a brief moment, God responds, and He says, uh, "Yes, yes, I do hear you, actually." And then she rather somberly says, "Oh, do you remember me?" And God, in a very gentle way, says, "Of, of course I remember you." And then He goes on to say, "Although the last time I heard from you was 15 years ago, when you had that cancer scare—that's the last time we had contact together, you and I." And this sketch went on to show that this was a person who had some kind of a misinformed understanding about God's relationship. And in this sense, there was a theological truth that came out of it. God had not forgotten her, but she had forgotten him. She embraced the idea of deism. This is what keeps us from knowing God. It's believing there is a God, but he seldom, if ever, desires to be in our presence or wants us to be in his. And that is unfortunately how many people see the cross. It is a tool, a trivial instrument, a chocolate bar. But it doesn't signify what God is trying to light up. That God loves you and cares for you and is with you and for you. And I'm telling you, if we see the message of the cross like this, we don't actually understand the message. So if you want to overcome your struggles, if you want to live in the fullness of God, a life that God has designed you for. If you truly want to be remade into the image of Jesus, you first must be willing to be honest about your situation. You have to admit there are struggles. You have to be willing to let people speak into that. You have to be humble And you must bring this stuff before God on a regular basis. Don't make it a 15-year interval. Make it something you do on a regular basis. Because if you don't, you're going to have a hard time experiencing the care that the cross shows you. And you certainly will never attain and apply the resurrection in your life like like Paul tells us. So as we wrap up this point, on this Easter Sunday, I want you to ask yourself a question. It'll be behind me. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your savior or is he your watchmaker? Did he set you in motion and forget about you? Or do you really see Jesus as a person who who deeply loves you? Who cares for you? Because if you see it that way, you're likely to start identifying with Christ in your struggles. You're likely to start hearing voices from the cross you've never heard before. You're likely to start hearing from the Holy Spirit when he triggers the warning signs of, of trial in your life. When he gives you the ability to discern and to sense what's going on in your life. When that happens, you will be in the presence of God. And the only way this probably sounds like a nursery rhyme here, but the only way to truly want to be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of God. You'll never really salivate for that unless you've tasted it. And if you've not tasted it, ask God to help you taste it because he wants that for you. On the contrary, if you see God as your watchmaker, you'll likely not see your issues at all. Or you'll recognize that you have them, but you will choose to be defeated by them. You will isolate yourself from the people who love you most and you'll see yourself as a burden or you'll just get proud and really don't feel the need to deal with them. You'll try to cover up those things by putting on a front with the hope of hiding what's really going on in your life. And in that way, you will, you will imbibe the, the nasty toxin of self-righteousness that we talked about a few weeks ago. Don't do that. Be freed. The cross frees us. The cross shows us God loves you so much. He wants to be something much more than a, a watchmaker in your life. He wants to be involved in you, with you in your struggles. And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Why do we celebrate the cross today? Well, because the cross says, the cross affirms what I'm saying right now. God sees the plight of humanity. It's what we read in Isaiah. He sees our struggles and he does not take the watch off. The watch is his. He's owned it. He intervenes. He doesn't ignore. He sends his son to get in the mix, to fix it, and to create a new pathway of light and life. And he does this for us, not because he has to. God doesn't have to do anything. He is God. But he does because he wants to. And that should say, say something to us. It isn't that he's obliged to do for us things. He cares for us and wants to do these things for us. The cross shows us in humanity's greatest hour of need, God does not turn his back to us. He is present. His death overcomes sin. He has always been there for us. And he will always be there for us in every future hour of our need. That is what the resurrection teaches us. If we just have the cross, we have an incomplete equation. The cross deals with sin. The resurrection now gives us the ability to live free from it. To live in a way that is victorious. To live in a way that is bound up in joy and hope and peace. If you will humbly admit that you need God, he will be there. And that is his promise to us. And that is the beautiful gospel truth that we kind of anchor in this morning. But it sets up a springboard for a brief point, but nonetheless a second one. We have to know that God cares for us in our struggles. The cross also shows us, though, to overcome your struggle... And that's what we should want to do, right? We should recognize that we have challenges and then want to see how God can, can breathe life to us through them. The cross shows us to overcome your struggle, you must be willing to invite God into your struggle. And that's very different. Recognizing is one thing. The invitation for God to be in your life with these things is another. And it piggybacks on what I just introduced. This kind of relational isolation Is perhaps the greatest roadblock to a person experiencing any kind of meaningful care from God. The cross says absolute availability. Yet it's kind of ironic that the preferred medicine of people in our culture, and at times even in the Christian faith, is that when they do struggle, they walk away from any type of contact with God, care from other people. This tactic, listen to me, is regularly used by our enemy. And it has torpedoed a lot of Christian lives. From a pastoral perspective, it's one of the greatest red flags that I look for. Isolation typically trips, trips an alarm. It's when people begin to distance themselves from others. Remember, the command is love God and neighbor. You know, love, love your brother and sister in Jesus. And so what happens is when love for brother and sister wanes, it's typically de- connected to a love for the, for the father of the brother and sister. Isolation almost always signifies a deeper heart issue. Because the Christian faith is so rooted in community and availability with God. The whole message of the resurrection is God's with you every day. He says, listen, Jesus was on earth with you, but now my Holy Spirit is in you. Like, I'm never not with you anymore. All of this screams availability. Yet at times we, we want to be unavailable to God. So it would make sense that we get concerned when we sense people straying from both of these areas. First Peter 5.8, for example, right behind me, describes this reality like this. Be alert. And of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. This is an exhortation, and there's a very pointed truth in this. In Peter's part of the world, the lion was, and to this very day, is still a well-known killing machine. It is one of the most proficient uh, killings—probably too strong of a word. Because if a lion could talk, you would say, "Killing? I'm just eating, man. What are you talking about? I'm not a bad lion. I'm so hungry, right?" But but when we watch this, we're like, "Man, that is brutal." And that's what they were seeing. Lions stalk, and they are notorious for preferring uh, the sick, the isolated, the injured, those that lag behind. They go for the animals that leave the pack, that, re- that leave the relational care of those who love them. In 2000, I've shared this, at least this journey with you before. I actually went to East Africa. I did mission work in the bush, like I slept in tents on the edge of the Rift Valley. I'm not kidding. And I worked with an indigenous tribe called the Maasai, and we actually went down into a place you have seen on... National Geographic called Ngorongoro. It's called the Crater, and I watched a pack of lions eat a wildebeest. It was one of the most profoundly amazing/slash horrific things I've ever seen. It was nature like doing its thing, and it gave me and this a new found respect for this verse, because the lion is efficient at dragging away somebody from the care of something that matters, and that's what this verse is teaching us. If you want to become more like Jesus, seldom, if ever, I would say it doesn't happen. When we spiritually, physically, and emotionally isolate ourselves from the care of God and, and his people. When we, when we turn away from the cross, we're, we're moving away from the shepherd who keeps the pack safe. And, in fact, that usually becomes an incubator for depression and regression. You know, if you want to kind of mire in the, the struggles of life, just lock yourself in your head for a couple of months and see where that takes you. It can be very detrimental. The desire of our flesh at times and the ploy of our enemy often pulls us in that direction. And so we've got to think differently. If we go that route, we're at a higher risk of spiritual injury because the enemy prefers the injured. The one intentionally straying from the fold because they are embarrassed about who they are. They know they're not where Jesus wants them. And so what's happening is is they're worshiping an approval idol. They're more concerned with what people think about them than they are resting in the approval of God on the cross. That's what the cross says. You're, You're approved. And we compound the stress struggle if we don't press into that. And the reason being, when you choose isolation, you cannot objectively identify your struggle. And your struggle reveals your heart. If you, even if you admit you have one, you might, you might not be clearly seeing who you are. You see the light, or without the light of the cross, it's sort of impossible to identify the root of our struggles. And this is only because the person who can truly reveal the depths of your heart to you, in a way that you and I cannot even reveal to ourselves, is Jesus Christ. He knows you and I better than you and I know you and I. And he cares about you and I more than you and I care about you and I. And so while God uses many means, it is really not wise to exclude him from the process or God's people, which God routinely works through It puts you in a spiritual vacuum. And knowing this is important because our external struggles, the weeds, I like to call them of life, they, they really represent, the, they represent something much more significant than just what we see. There is a root that makes a weed grow. And if we don't have insight from God's light about what the roots are— We are likely to see more weeds. And so to truly become like Jesus, to truly address the struggles of life, you must let the cross get to the root of that. That's what the cross does. The cross kills the root, but then the power of the resurrection helps to grow something new in your life. And in those two poles, we have to to live in that tension. Sin is dead and gone. The weed is toast. But the truth is that that stuff can tend to pop out in our lives in the, the, the least opportune times. That's where you need something else. If not, you'll likely blame everything around you for why you are the way you are, while exonerating yourself for why you are the way you are. We need the objectivity of God. I'll leave you with this closing example. Uh, For example, in my life, I've shared with you on multiple occasions that I have struggled in the past with anger. It was a root issue in my life forever. And by struggled, that doesn't mean that doesn't flare up. It just means that perhaps more than ever, as I've reached the kind of midlife point at 40, you know, these are things that I've just tried to deal with more aggressively. I've asked God for his favor in these areas. And anger was just a straight-up response for me. It was, it was in the same way the lion eats and hunts. That's just my response to everything. It was an emotional response to everything in life. And I finally got to this place in my mid-20s. This is when this process began, where I started admitting to God that I really began to ask the question, um, why, why do I get so angry? And at first I answered the question by deferring blame to legitimate life circumstances. This is why I say we need the light of God. Because I'm telling you, we are expert. People are expert And shining the light on all kinds of things, but not necessarily their own heart. For example, uh, it's regularly modeled to me growing up. I mean, even to this day when I'm around my family, whom I love deeply, like, anger is just what you do. That's how you deal with everything. And that's why they get angry about the the stupidest stuff. I can't remember. I've even made fun of my dad about this. So uh, I can't remember my dad, like, screaming at my mom because she burnt toast. And I was thinking, like, it's just toast. Like, we got 27 other pieces of bread in the loaf. (laughs) But then what happens is like I'm 27 and I'm yelling about toast, right? You just, you get to that place. So there's certainly external influences. And and with some of you, I've, I have shared this, but, uh, this is all in like my decompression time up until the eighth grade, um, I was, like, extremely picked on. It was crazy. The narrative behind this is crazy. Today we call this bullying. Like, there's a whole thing, a sociology connected to it. Back then that was just the 8th grade. Like, we didn't know any different. And so I had all these external pressures. And at some point I just kind of snapped and decided I would not take it anymore. And here's where the challenge is here. There were lots of things I could cite in life. Big reasons. And these are sort of big reasons. And in my mind it was kind of convenient for a season to blame the reasons. They made sense of things. They kind of justify why you do what you do. But at the end of the day, you're really deferring blame to circumstances. You're pushing out the cost of what's going on in your life to things around you. And the great irony in this is that while in one sense I thought it was okay to deal with stuff like this, the problem is that as I got older, as I took less, the bullying stopped. Like, that didn't happen anymore. That was not, I was not known for that. But the anger did not. Like, the circumstance changes. And at the end of the day, I didn't. And that is a problem especially in the Christian faith. And so I went to God again, and I started reading the Bible. I'll, I'll never forget the week I became a Christian. I was butchering meat. It was 4 in the morning, and I was waiting the clock in, and I read the pa- that passage where they, uh, the Roman soldiers beat Jesus and ripped his beard and spit on him, and I got angry like I wanted to fight the Roman soldiers because like, oh, God was mixing up all this stuff in my head. And I had to sort through the differences between righteous anger and anger. And what I'm telling you is through the process, I learned something very important about God. He proved what I'm sharing with you today. He cares. There's no other way to say it. He's available and present. Whatever our struggle is, he wants to be there. God starts to reveal the root of the issue. And the million-dollar question for you all this morning as we move into response time is this. When the issue is revealed, when you're comfortable with the struggle and inviting God into it, you have the what-do-I-do-now question. And there's really only two options here. You can stay on the path of darkness. You can stay blinded in that reality. You can continue to defer blame to external circumstances and shine a light on everything around you. And please hear me. I am not minimizing the reality of external circumstances. They can really shape us. But the truth is they're not supposed to ultimately define us. And that's different. That clay is remoldable in God's eyes unless you harden it. So what I'm trying to say is that in our lives, there will always be external factors that have the ability to shape us. However, if you want to truly deal with them, you can't blame them anymore. God is concerned with your heart. I'm not saying he's not concerned about your circumstances. I'm just saying the way he will likely deal with your circumstances is by renewing your heart to persevere through them. Seldom is the story that God changes the surrounding in life. He can do that, but it's rare. Most likely he changes the heart in you. And that gives you a different look on the surrounding. What it means is we got to look to the cross. we got to invite God into the struggle. And that's how we get through this stuff. So when you leave this morning, this Easter celebration, it's over. We're going to be out of here in less than 10 minutes. If you leave with one resurrection truth today, my prayer is that it would be this very practical one. Our struggles in life reveal our hearts. And when we are honest about them, it gives us a wonderful opportunity to invite God into our lives, to experience his care on the cross To know that what we celebrate today is a power that can be attained and applied every day of your life. The cross overcomes your sin and the power of the resurrection gives you the ability and the authority to live victoriously through the struggles we have. And so for some of you right now, it's likely your life is maybe out of control. You've got a struggle, a real one right now. You've got something fueling that. For some of you, there is no struggle. This is one of those seasons of bliss for you. No matter where you are in that spectrum, we know, if you've been on this earth long enough, you know that the valley and the mountaintop, that topography of life changes regularly. So my job here this morning is not to make you afraid of something or to have you leaving here not confident. It's just to prepare us to give thanks for where we are now and to be able to celebrate the struggle when it comes. It is in those moments where we have great, great opportunities to look to the cross. And one, we can give thanks for it. And the other, we can press into it for love, care, and support. So ask yourself this morning, are you being honest with yourself that you struggle? If not, ask yourself... Why is it that your heart denies such a foundational human reality? We've been wired to struggle. This is sort of how life is, and the cross is a solution to it. Let Jesus' death and resurrection be the catalyst for how you attain and apply the victorious power of Jesus in your life. And as we go to response time, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his cross, his life in you, his resurrection, and what is it you will do about it as you leave this place this morning? Pray with me.